The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. We pick up this morning in verse 14 which is a continuation of where we were last week in verses 12 and 13. If you weren't with us last week, we looked at these verses and we saw that we are called to live with expectation for the examination with adoration. That we're to expect suffering, that suffering will come. We should not be surprised, therefore, when it does come, but we should instead live with an expectation and and an understanding that very often these sufferings that come, come in the form of an examination or in the form of a test. That we are tested by God. And we looked at the difference between testing and tempting and why it is that God tests us and what he does in his testing of us. Um, this is verse 12. And then we saw... That even though these trials may come, even though these sufferings may come, we're called to live with adoration, with praise to God and to rejoice in our sufferings. Because in our sufferings, we are joined in fellowship with Christ and his suffering. Well, this week we finish out this main portion of the letter as it deals with suffering. And here's what we're going to see this morning. Three things. We're going to see a warning. We're going to see a witness. And we're going to see a willingness. There's a warning for us. There's a witness. And there's a willingness. Now, we start this morning in verse 14. And it builds on the thoughts that came before in in verse 13, one of the hardest things to do for me at least in preaching through epistles um, is, is to find a stopping place. Um, unfortunately, our, our regularly, our, our stopping places are determined by our clocks and not by um, the, the flow of the texts. Um, but we're hungry and we want to go to lunch. And verse 14 builds on these thoughts that came before Really in verse 13, verse 13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So last week we saw when these sufferings for Christ's sake come, that we are called to um, rejoice. We're called to worship God when suffering for Christ's sake comes upon us. And verse 14 just builds on that and gives us another reason to rejoice. And that is that when we are insulted because of the name of Christ, we are blessed. We are blessed. If we're insulted, what, what is this? What does this mean? If you are insulted for the name of, of Christ. Well, this word here, insulted, is the same word that's used in the Gospels in reference to um, the passion, the sufferings, the crucifixion of Jesus. Mark uses it in Mark 15, 32. 
where he records the, the people say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then Mark gives us this. He says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Reviled him. This is the same word Peter uses here for insults. This is to, to literally heap insults upon someone. This is verbal abuse that you would take from the world and you, they would heap on you because of your connection to your faith in Jesus Christ. This absolutely, without a doubt, was happening to these churches. Now, how do I know that? I know that because this has been a thread that has been woven through this entire letter. We, we saw it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, where Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When they speak against you on, as evildoers, this is being insulted because of your good works, because of your fellowship and your connection with Jesus Christ. We saw it again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Again, we saw it, 1 Peter 4, verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. These were brothers and these were sisters um, in these churches that Peter's writing to that were being insulted, verbally abused by the world because of their connection with Jesus Christ. And the reality is, is that this doesn't just happened to them, but this also happens to us. And this happens to you because of the name of Christ, for the name of Christ, on the behalf of Christ, when we are insulted because we live differently, when we are insulted because we believe differently, when we are called things that we are not, like bigots, like close-minded like old-fashioned, like out of touch. Idiots, simpletons. When we are insulted, the reality is that we are blessed. But how is this a blessing? How is it a blessing to be insulted? Doesn't feel like a blessing, kind of hurts. How is it a blessing? Well, Peter tells us how it's a blessing. He tells us by saying, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, this is an interesting phrase, at least it is to me. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And I read that and I thought, why? Why rests upon you? Why not indwells you? Why not fills you? Why not strengthens you? Why not empowers you? Why rests upon you? What's the point of resting, the Spirit of God resting upon you? Well, this idea of the Spirit of God resting upon you 
brings with it an understanding that as the Spirit of God rests on you, the Spirit of God is ministering to you to bring you relief in your suffering. That when the Spirit of God comes upon us, when the Spirit of God rests upon us, what the Spirit of God is doing is is bringing relief to us in our moments of, of need. This is what Jesus has in mind in uh, Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When the yoke of the Lord, when the yoke of the Spirit of God comes upon you, what do you find? You find relief. You find rest when the Spirit of God comes upon you. Now, why is is this language of the Spirit of God resting on you? Why is it important? It's important and it's, it's incredibly meaningful because this is the same language used in prophecy concerning the coming of Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1, the, the, the prophet writes that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is the prophecy concerning Jesus that when Messiah comes, the spirit of God will come and the spirit of God will rest on him. And this resting of the spirit of God on him will will manifest itself in some ways. When the Spirit of God will come upon him, so will the Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. That all comes with the resting of the Spirit of God on the man of God, Jesus Christ. This is prophecy. How will we know the Spirit of God will come and rest upon him? And what do we see at his At his baptism at Jordan, we see the Spirit of God descending like a dove, resting upon him, showing the world, showing us. This is the Messiah, and the Spirit of God rests upon him. Now, here are we, some 2,000 years later, in the midst of our suffering, being encouraged by knowing that we are blessed in our suffering, because when we suffer, just like Jesus, the Spirit of God rests upon us. And with the Spirit of God comes all of the goodness and the promises of God and the relief of the Spirit in the face of suffering. Suffering. Just as the Spirit of God ministered to Christ Jesus, so does the Spirit of God minister to us in our time of need when we suffer for Christ's sake. There's your introduction. Verse 15 is a warning. It's a warning. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. We are blessed if we suffer for Christ. 
We are not blessed if we suffer because of our sin. That's what the verse means. When we suffer for the sake of Christ, when we suffer for righteousness sake, when we suffer because we choose obedience um, to Jesus over uh, conformity to the world, when we suffer, when we're insulted, when we're reviled, we are blessed because the Spirit of God rests upon us. But if our suffering comes because of our sins, that's a different story. That's a different story. Peter says it this way, but let none of you. Now, who does that include? Everybody. All of us. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Now, there's, as I read commentaries on this, there was some emphasis put here in the grouping of those three and the, the setting apart of the meddler in the word or as a meddler. You see it to begin when you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler or as a meddler. Now, we know what these are. And we can get behind them. And we can say, absolutely, right? Let none of you suffer as a murderer. So what does that mean? Don't kill anybody, right? Don't kill anybody. Don't kill anybody. Now, we, we could take the words of Jesus and say, if you have hatred towards somebody, then you're just as guilty as the murderer. But don't suffer as a murderer. This is, this is, this is deserving of capital punishment in God's word, right? Don't suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a thief. As someone who steals, someone who takes something that's not yours. Again, serious crime deserving serious punishment in God's word. Or as an evildoer. Just lump everything else. We've got murder, that's evil. We've got thievery, that's evil. Don't suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer as a thief. Don't suffer as an evildoer. And we can get behind all of those, absolutely. We're not called to, to suffer for those things. I mean, those are the biggies, right? But then, what does Peter do? He says, or as a meddler. Now, hang on a minute. That doesn't belong with the rest of those. I ain't met a Baptist who ain't a meddler. Do you know what a meddler is? A meddler is, is someone who kind of meddles. Gets in people's business. Wants to know what's going on. Where they don't belong. Where they don't belong. That's a meddler. And you might read that and you might say that there's no way that belongs with the others. But that's exactly Peter's point. There is no sin that is excused from murdering to meddling. If you suffer for your sin, you're not blessed. You're not blessed. Be it you kill somebody or you just meddle in affairs that you ain't got no business in. Now, how is meddling a, a sin? I didn't have time to sort of flesh all that out, but the Bible speaks over and over again about living peaceably. 
gossip, keeping to yourself. Meddling is the opposite of those things. If you are guilty of these, if you're guilty of these, from murdering to meddling and everything in between, if you're guilty of these, you have no right to expect the grace of God. You have no right to expect the grace of God. Any of them. If your suffering comes from your sinning, you are not blessed. This is the warning that that Peter is giving us as the people of, of God. When we suffer, let it be because of our righteousness, not our unrighteousness. Let it be according to our sanctification and not our sinfulness. Let it be according to our obedience and not our disobedience. Let us not suffer as murderers and thieves and evildoers and meddlers. That is the warning. The implication is do not sin. Live for Christ. And when you live for Christ, you can rest knowing that when suffering comes on his account, the spirit of God rests upon you. Talk about peace. I mean, that's a peace, right? When you're living for Christ, you're living for God, you're living in obedience and suffering comes. You don't have to go, well, what did I do? God's punishing me. What's happening? No, you can sit back and say, I am blessed. The spirit of God rests upon me. And with the spirit of God comes all the blessings of God. This isn't because of my sin. This is because of the grace of God active in my life and obedience and sanctification and trust and faith. This is the warning. Don't suffer on the account of sin, Peter says. Don't suffer on the account of sin. But there's also a witness that comes along with this warning in verse 16. Yet... If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter says, yet... In in opposition, in contrast to suffering because of your sin. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian. Now, this is important for us to note. Did you know this phrase, this word Christian, only used three times in all of the Bible? That's it. Here's one. Two others are found in the book of Acts. Acts 11, 26. And when he had found them, he brought them to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And then again in Acts 26, 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? This is it. Only three times in God's word is this phrase used to describe the followers of Jesus Christ, his disciples, as Christians. Now, why is that important? And what's the, the, the point of Peter using that phrase here? It is pretty much historically agreed that the phrase Christian originated as an insult or as mockery from the world towards followers of Jesus Christ. That it was an insult, that it was them mocking them, little Christs, as they got called Christians. 
It was slander. It was insult. It was mocking. The world mocking them because of their association with Jesus Christ. And what have believers now done? We've taken their insults. We've taken their mockings on behalf of Jesus Christ. And we've taken it as who we are. We're Christians. We're Christians. That's why Peter says... Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, mocked by the world. Mocked by the world. When we suffer for Christ's name, when we suffer as a Christian, Peter says, do not be ashamed. Ashamed. Now church, I don't have to tell you what shame is and, with, and what shame does. You know, and I know, and we know all too well. Right? It's just a reality of life that starts when we're old enough to comprehend right from wrong and continues until the day that we die. Shame. Shame. We all feel it. And it creeps its ugly head inside our hearts and our lives. And what does it drive us to do? To hide. This, this is what happened in the garden. This was the result of the very first sin. As God comes to fellowship with his people, after Adam and Eve have disobeyed God and fallen, what do they do? They hide. And when God says, why have you hidden? They say, we're ashamed because we're naked. Sin brings shame and shame drives us to hide. What is the opposite of shame? As Peter says, when you suffer for Christ's sake, as a Christian, don't be ashamed. So if we're not to be ashamed, if we're not to feel shame, then what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is pride. Not in a sinful way, but in a way of honor. In a way of honor. When you suffer for Christ's sake, we don't hide in shame. We're not called to be ashamed. But instead, we're called to glorify God in that name. What name? In the name of Christ. When you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But glorify God in that name. Do you see what's happening here? What Peter's calling us to do here? What he's saying is, when you suffer for the sake of Christ, when the world heaps insults on you, you're not suffering because of your sin, but you're suffering for Christ, then you have the opportunity to be a witness and not hide in shame, but publicly glorify God in His name. This is a witness. This is an opportunity for us to be a witness to the world that when suffering comes, when hard times come, when insults come, we don't do like the rest of the world and hide. Instead, we stand firm knowing that the Spirit of God rests on us and we glorify God and we're used as a witness to the world. But this isn't the only kind of witness that Peter mentions here. Not just verse 16 is a witness, but verses 17 and 18 are also Peter writes, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become 
of the ungodly and the sinner. And the sinner. Peter says it is time for judgment. What is this judgment? It is divine judgment, godly judgment. It is the judgment of God. What does this mean? That it is time for the judgment of God to begin at the household of God. Well, here, the judgment of God does not mean condemnation. What it means is a godly discipline leading to godliness. That's the judgment here. Now, how do I know that? Because this is used elsewhere. 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, now we there being Christians, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The judgment of God on the people of God, on the household of God, is not condemnation. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But judgment still comes to the people of God, to the household of God. And when it comes, it comes not as condemnation, but it comes as godly discipline. It's the discipline of the Lord in our lives. This is a form of the testing from verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is a means in the hands of a sovereign God to establish us, to refine us, to um, build our faith and our trust in him through his discipline. That is his judgment. When we sin, we receive the loving, disciplining hand of God to bring us to righteousness. And that is a form of God's judgment. And Peter says, for it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. This time here is not chronos as in chronological time, but instead of um, an era, a period that the, the time of God's judgment on the household of God, the season, the era of it is now. It's now. And why is it now? Because remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. That we are living in the last days. We're living in the last days. The next event in redemptive history is the return of Christ. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 3,000 years from now. It doesn't matter. We're still living in the last days. We're still living in the last days. And the time of judgment is now. It's time for the judgment of God on the household of God. This judgment of God begins with the household of God. It begins with us. Now, God beginning his judgment on his people first and then going out to the nations is the regular and consistent experience through all of time. I'm going to give you three references in the Old Testament. Write them down. We're not going to read them. Go back and study them. In Jeremiah 25, 15, you see the, the judgment of God promised to begin with the people of God and then flow out to the nations. You see it in Ezekiel 9, 1, Ezekiel 
9, 1, and you see it in Malachi 1. God's judgment beginning with the people of God and flowing out to the nations. Why is that? Because God beginning his judgment on his people serves as a witness to the world. It serves to say, if God's judgment even comes to his people, what does that mean for those who don't obey him? This is the question that Peter's asking, right? For it is time for the judgment, for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? It's a rhetorical question. The the answer is already given. The answer is implied. The answer is understood. If we come under the righteous judgment of God and He loves us and He's chosen us and He's set us apart and He's filled us with His Spirit and He's caused us to love Him but yet we are not immune from His judgment because of our sins then what is to come for those who do not obey the gospel? It serves as a witness to the world that his judgment is sure. And his judgment is right. If his judgment begins with us, then what does that say to the world? We serve as a witness. God's judgment on us and our sin. Disciplining us in our sin. Not condemning us, but disciplining us in our sin. Serves as a witness to the world of the righteous judgment of God that is coming on those who do not obey the gospel. The grand difference is our judgment is not one of condemnation, but theirs is. And if you have not obeyed the gospel, then you are not immune. You are not excused from the judgment of God that will come in condemnation. Would you rather receive the loving discipline of God or the just wrath of God? Of condemnation. The way to receive the loving discipline is through faith in the gospel, belief in the gospel. That's the, that's the, the difference maker here, right? What will happen to those who do not believe the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is, is that you're a sinner unable to save yourself. There's not enough good that you can ever do to make yourself right to a holy God. Nothing. All sin from murdering to meddling separates us from God. We can't make ourselves right. But God in his grace made a way where we couldn't make one for ourselves. And he sent his son in the form of flesh. And he lived a perfect life we could never live. And he died a death on the cross that we deserved. He died for sin even though he never sinned. He became sin in that moment even though he never knew sin. And he took the wrath of God for every person who would obey the gospel and believe in him. So that he takes the wrath and you get the glory. That's the gospel. But yet Jesus didn't stay dead, he lived. He came again 
to new life, ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God today, and he is our advocate. He is the one who pleads our case before God for all of those who trust the gospel. If you do not want to be condemned, the only way to escape that condemnation is through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith in the gospel. That doesn't mean we're outside of the, of the judgment of God in the form of God's discipline on our sin, but when God disciplines us, it serves as a witness to the world. It serves as a witness to the world, right? So the world can, can look at us and can say in verse 18, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, here's what that means, like I'm barely making it. The best of the best is barely making it. I don't know who you think the best of the best is. You know, we, we say the best of the best. You, you're thinking you're Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, Jacob Freeman. That's what I'm thinking. They're barely making it. They're scarcely saved. I'm not getting there because I deserve it. I'm not getting there because I made it. Quite frankly, I'm not getting there because I've got the strength to keep faith. I'm getting there because he's kept me. I'm scarcely saved. I mean, I'm getting in by the skin of my teeth. I'm getting in being disciplined the whole way. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This is a quote from uh, Proverbs 11:31. If the righteous is repaid on the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? The emphasis is that it is through difficulty that the righteous are saved. The people of God then, how much more difficult the unrighteous, right? Acts 14, 21, when they had preached the gospel to the city and they made many disciples, they returned to uh, Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. If it's difficult for believers, it's impossible for unbelievers. That's the witness. That's the witness. There's a warning, there's a witness, and there's a willingness. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Church, God is gracious. He is good and he is caring and he is merciful and loving and forgiving and long-suffering. God is our faithful creator. He's faithful and he has proven himself faithful. All through the ages, God has proven himself faithful. God has never stopped being faithful to his promises and to his people. And he has proven that in Jesus Christ, the yes and the amen to all of God's promises are found. He is the faithful creator. He is the faithful, of crea faithful creator. And what does that mean? It means that we can willingly, not begrudgingly, not fearfully, not with hesitation, but we can freely and with joy entrust our souls to our faithful creator while doing good. This is the way Peter closes out this entire section on suffering. This is it. 
Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I could preach three weeks on this verse. What do we see? We see the sovereignty of God in suffering. That it's the will of God for us to suffer. We see the goodness and the faithfulness of God being a faithful creator. We see a call for holy living and doing good. And we see an entrusting of our souls, not in ourselves, not in our works, not in our goodness, but in Him. All in one verse to wrap up everything. And this is it. If we had to take the last three months that we've looked at suffering, this is it. Therefore, let us who suffer according to the will of God, let us willingly, freely, with joy and expectation and hope, let us entrust our souls to a faithful creator. He's faithful, church. While we do good. So that we don't suffer for our sin. So that we're not judged in godly discipline. But so that we are blessed as the Spirit of God rests on us. Rests on us. What do we see in these verses? We see a warning. Don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. We see a witness. When you do suffer, don't hide in shame, but bring glory to his name. We see a witness in that as God's judgment comes to the household of God, how much more is it going to come to the world? And we see a willingness. Let us freely entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.